the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome, folks, once again to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're listening to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, We get on the air each week because of the engineering skills of Alan Dempsey. And uh, Andrew Herdliska does the producing for us each week. Steve Byers is with us in this first segment, pastor, biblical counselor at Faith Church and Faith Biblical Counseling Ministries in Lafayette, Indiana. His new book is out. It's called Loving Your Community. Steve, welcome. How are you? Doing fine. It's good to talk to you, Pat. Uh, Steve, I want you to explain to us uh, why it was important to write this book and why the introduction is called Taking the Gospel to the Streets. Well, Pat, you know, it's very easy for followers of Jesus Christ and local churches to become very um, insular and focus simply on um, how we can love people inside the church. And while I believe God's Word is very clear we ought to do that, we also have the opportunity to love our neighbors. And every church and every Christian is trying to determine, how do I relate to those around me who don't yet know the Lord? How do I um, show love to people outside the church walls? How do I make a difference? And so we've been trying to work on that as a church for decades now, and uh, by God's grace, we've learned a few lessons along the way. Um, We've learned from other people who have taught us. We've learned from trying to apply the Word of God. And so we're trying to share what it looks like when we get outside of our church walls, try to love our neighbors, and look for opportunities to tell them about the good news of Christ. First section, part one, uh, the biblical foundation of community-based ministry. And then you you get off on topics like loving in the name of Christ and meeting your community's pressing needs and caring for the welfare of your community. Uh, Can you explain all that to us? You know, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, um, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And I think sometimes churches um, don't know their neighbors very well. In fact, I encourage churches to ask the question, if God removed your church from the face of his earth, would your neighbors notice and would your neighbors care? Mm. And many times churches don't know their neighbors, their neighbors don't know them. And so our ability to obey what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount is um, stinted. And so what we encourage churches to do and what we tried to do ourselves is just try to survey our neighbors from the perspective of what are the greatest needs that exist in our part of town that a church like us might be able to meet together. And so we have three campuses at different places around Lafayette and West Lafayette. They're in very different parts of the city on purpose. And so we've done everything we possibly could to try to get to know the people who live around us and ask them to educate us what are the greatest needs that exist in these neighborhoods, and how can we best show love to you? And we found that um, people, maybe who don't know the Lord, are very, very open to that kind of a conversation. I also believe it's wise to speak to your mayor, to speak to your police chief, speak to the um, superintendent of public schools, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. speak to other nonprofits, find out what are the greatest needs, what, what are the places where light needs to be shown most brightly, And then design ministries, use the church's resources as a means of loving your neighbors and see if redemptive conversations result. Part two, Steve, of your book, The Practice of Community-Based Ministry, and you list uh, quite a number here. Uh, So let's get started. A biblical counseling, sharing hope with those who are hurting. Uh, Tell us about that. Well, for over 30 years, our church has had the privilege of having a community-based counseling center. And so we have 32 people 
um, a number of our pastors, some medical doctors, and some other godly men and women who have been trained uh, from our church family who make themselves available every Monday. Mm. And they provide um, counseling services for people in our community free of charge. So we're talking about people who might be struggling with anger or worry, fear, depression, might be struggling with some aspect of their marriage, uh, raising children, some kind of addiction. And so we just have people who are trained and ready to, to speak to such persons, to hear their stories, to just compassionately spend time with them, and then at the right time and in the right way, point them to the truth of the Word of God and to the redemptive hope that's available in Jesus Christ. And even though um, we're providing somewhere between 80 and 100 hours of that kind of counseling each week, that we can't stay ahead of the need. And we've never advertised ever, but we always have a waiting list of people from our community, many of whom don't yet know the Lord, who want to sit down and talk about what's going on in their life and are wide open to hearing what the Word of God might have to say. That's just one of the many ways that we can love our community. And so we want the folks around us who don't yet know the Lord, we don't want them to think of us as, well, that's the church that's mad about something, or that's the church that is separated from us, or that's the church that thinks they're better than us. No, we want our neighbors to think that's the church that loves us. And they don't just talk about it, but they find ways to demonstrate that love, especially in the areas of greatest need in this town. That's what we mean by loving our community. Now tell us about accessible facilities, opening your buildings to neighbors in need. Well, you know, many churches have buildings that sit vacant six and a half days a week when our neighbors have need of that same kind of space, and it's just a matter of learning to say yes unless you have to say no. So, for example, at Christmas time, um, you know, many uh, working parents, they don't get two weeks off for Christmas, and yet their school-aged children do. So there's an immediate need, especially for low-income parents, because if they have to pay for child care for those days their children are off school, a significant percentage of their salary is going to go right to child care. So how do you pay for food? How do you pay for rent? How do you pay for utilities? How do you pay for anything um, special for your family at Christmas time? Well, here we've got all these church buildings, Pat, and so what we do, we provide winter break ministry. So for those same days that children are off school, we provide um, practically free child care. And so we've got the buildings, they're sitting there vacant. We've got volunteers, people who are um, college students who aren't in school or people who have some time off work that could volunteer. And we're just trying to love the fire out of our neighbors. We're trying to meet a legitimate need. And, Pat, we had six children choose to place their faith and trust in Christ as a result of those winter break ministries a couple of weeks ago. And we had some families at church the following Sunday who had never been in church before, but they said, our kids had such a great time in winter break ministry, they wanted to come and see what Sunday school was all about. That's what we mean by making your facilities accessible. You've explained to us instructional classes showing the practicality of God's Word. Fill us in on that. Well, there again, as you find out from your neighbors, what are the greatest needs? What are the questions you have? What are the the struggles you have? And then for us, on Wednesday nights, we have a a community institute, and we set it up exactly like a a community college where we print a um, catalog, but we're trying to design classes that might be four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks or whatever. So they they need to be short. but they're on topics that are of interest to people in the community, but based on the truth of the Word of God. So, for example, if you had a class that you offered to your community about what Scripture says about depression, I'm fairly certain you could fill the room. Or what God's Word says about marriage, or biblical principles of finance, or biblical principles of raising children. It's amazing. In fact, we'll have a 1,000 persons at our campuses typically on a Wednesday night, many of them who are from the community, just to find out what God's Word says about practical areas of everyday life. And it's just another means of loving our community with the truth of the Word of God. Now, uh, we've got to take a break, Steve, but then we'll be back. Steve Byers is our guest from Lafayette, Indiana. We're talking about his book, Loving Your Community. And when we come back, uh, Steve, I want you to talk about 
restructured ministries, including others in everything you do. Uh, We're trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando, folks. We need your help. Uh, We've got a website, orlandodreamers.com, and you go on up there and and just sign up. Just say, I'm interested. Uh, We need to deliver a message to Major League Baseball that Orlando is ready uh, to become a Major League Baseball city. You're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Stay with us. Pastor Steve Byers is with us. He's in Lafayette, Indiana. We're talking about his book, Loving Your Community. And uh, as advertised, Steve, tell us about restructured ministries, including others in everything you do. Well, Pat, a lot of this just has to do with the overall mentality of our church staff, of our elected leaders, and of our entire church family. And we encourage everybody who is serving or a part of our church to have an outreach focus, to be embracing the notion of what it means to be an ambassador for Christ, and in part, including our neighbors in everything that we're doing as a church. So, for example, our children's pastor. We do not want him to think about his responsibility being the children of faith church. We want him to think about him as the responsible person for the children of all of the kids in our ministry parish. So not just people who go to our church, but all of the children who live around each one of our campuses. The exact same thing is true for our our youth pastor, the man who works with teens. We don't want him just thinking about his responsibility for the teens in our church. We want them taking responsibility for the teens in our neighborhoods, for all of the teenagers who live around our church campuses. And so it's including them in everything that we do. The exact same thing is true of our sports leagues. You know, by God's grace, we have several gymnasiums and quite a few athletic fields, but we would never have a church league. And I'm speaking a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but what our church family is used to hearing me say is, I believe church leagues are of the devil. Now, now, again, I'm overstating that, but what I mean is, why wouldn't we have leagues for our community? And so if you came to our church on a typical Saturday and um, looked at, into one of our gyms or one of our athletic fields, they're not church leagues. They're community leagues. And, Pat, there are hundreds and hundreds of our neighbors, children, young adults, their parents, their grandparents, aunts and uncles, they're enjoying this league that has been put together by the church They know the coaches are going to treat the kids well. They know the officiating is going to be done fairly. They know the pricing is going to be either free or very reasonable. So it's a ministry to the entire neighborhood where even people who don't yet know the Lord would have cause to say, boy, this this town is better because of what that church is making available for us. And we we want our neighbors to constantly have reason to ask this question. Why do you do that for us? So we can say, well, because we love you, or why do you make that building available for the neighbors? Well, because we love you, or why do you have that program? Because we love you, we love you, we love you. And at some point, we want our neighbors to have a legitimate reason to ask the question, well, why in the world would you love me? And Pat, I believe that if we can get an unsaved neighbor or an unchurched person to ask that question, why would you love me? I think they're halfway to the kingdom. Because then we can explain that, well, because God loves you. And I would be delighted to sit down and talk with you about how he demonstrated that most supremely when he sent his son to die on the cross for you. But many times those conversations, those redemptive conversations, take place best in the crucible of addressing a need, of showing our neighbors that we genuinely love and care about them. Now, I want you to uh, get to this topic, Steve. Outreach events, making big statements to celebrate God's glory. What's up here? Well, we do a couple of them. One of them is called the Lafayette Living Nativity, and we named it that on purpose. We don't name things after our church. We name things after our town. And so that's obviously a living nativity that's done at Christmas time. There's um, 16 full-size sets, so we try to depict various aspects of the Christmas story, starting at creation and going all the way through to the second coming of Christ. 
We've got several hundred actors, live donkeys, camels, sheep, all that sort of thing. And people can come through and they can either park their car and walk through. And there's a, a narrated tape at each set explaining what's going on. Or they can stay in their car and have it broadcast to them. But, Pat, in a, in a typical living nativity, we've been doing that for over 30 years, we'll see anywhere between eight and 12,000 people from our community come through. Mm. And they will hear the gospel in three different ways as they go through that presentation. We've never charged a dime for that. We don't want money to get involved in a ministry like that. But what we found is that people in our town are looking for safe, fun, affordable things to do with their families, especially around the holidays. So we do a, a similar presentation at Easter, the Lafayette Passion Play. And so we want to um, be sure that our neighbors know we, we want them to come to these events. We want to make them accessible. We want to make them free of charge. And for events like that, we want them saturated with the gospel and um, we're glad for the opportunity and creative ways to present the good news of Jesus Christ to those around us. Now, Steve, my guest is Steve Byers, and he's in Lafayette, Indiana. His book is called Loving Your Community. Uh, here's the next one to talk to us about. Restored neighborhoods, bringing new life to distressed areas. Uh, what's, what do you do here? Well, it was fascinating. We had a campus on the east side of town, and then the Lord allowed us to build a second campus on the west side of town. So what we decided to do, instead of building church buildings, we built community centers. And so we um, we went to our neighbors. We asked them what were the greatest needs that existed in town, and then we built buildings that serve our neighbors throughout the week, and then we flipped them and used them for our church services on Sunday. So we don't build church buildings that sit vacant six and a half days a week. We build neighborhood community centers, serve our neighbors all week long, and then flip them and use them for church on Sunday. So the mayor of our town watched us do that in the suburbs, and he said, you know, that's great in the suburbs, but what about the most challenging area of Lafayette? What about the area of town where there's the greatest concentration of domestic violence and drug and alcohol abuse and crime? And our mayor said to us, listen, we cannot as a city tax our way out of this problem. We cannot police our way out of this problem. So we're asking your church to start a CDC, a community development corporation, where you go to the worst house on the worst street. It's just totally counterintuitive, the one that no one else would buy or could not afford to buy and fix up and make any money. Once the house reaches that point, it's going to start dragging down the entire conditions of the street and the neighborhood. So you go in as a church, you buy that house, you know you're going to lose some money on it, but you renovate that house, you use it as an opportunity to teach your teenagers and young adults um, work skills, you transform that house, and then you make it available to a low to moderate income buyer. And as you do that, you're building relationships with people up and down that street. And as a CDC, as a community development corporation, you're trying to, in the love of Christ, be transformational in neighborhoods that really need that kind of care. And so our mayor didn't have to ask us to do that twice. And we're having a blast just going around town, finding the most challenging properties, and trying to renovate them and making them beautiful because that's what Jesus does. Steve Byers, uh, filling us in on some exciting things going on in Lafayette, Indiana. Tell us about community centers constructing your next building with others in mind. Well, Pat, we were in a situation. We had three worship services going on at our church, and things were pretty full. And so we were getting ready to build a new auditorium. That just seemed like the logical thing to do. So we had the architectural renderings, and we're sitting around one night as a leadership team and our pastors and deacons together. We're looking at this building. It's going to cost $9 million. And one of our guys said, is that the best use of that money, to spend $9 million on a big box that's going to sit vacant six and a half days a week? And that's not being critical of anybody else that would do that, but we looked at our situation and one of our guys said, well, if we didn't do that, what would we do? And somebody else said, well, how about if we just use that money to show love to our neighbors? And somebody else said, well, how would we do that? 
And we looked at each other and said, well, shame on us. We're not exactly sure. Let's just ask our neighbors. Not let's ask them what they want us to believe or what they want church to be like on Sunday. That wasn't the question. The question was, what are the greatest needs that exist in this part of town that a church like us might be able to meet? And our neighbors answered that question um, by the hundreds. And what they spoke to us about was, well, if you want to make this town a better place, we need more safe, affordable child care. We need um, places for single moms. We need places for at-risk kids. We need um, athletic facilities. We need places for teenagers. We need places for senior citizens. What they were saying to us, Pat, as strange as this might sound, is if you want to show love and make this part of town better, build something like a YMCA. Build a building that is addressing the greatest social needs. Provide a, a hub of addressing social need in this part of town. And so that's what we've decided to do. We're not going to build church buildings that sit vacant. We're going to build community buildings based on what our neighbors and community leaders and other nonprofits are telling us are the greatest needs. We're going to try to do that in the love of Christ, and then we're just going to love the fire out of everybody that walks through those doors. Steve, now tell us about residential treatment programs uh, demonstrating God's power to change lives. Well, you know, when you start talking to the mayor, when you start talking to um, the judges, when you start talking to other community leaders, they're gonna, it won't be long. They're going to be talking about addictions problems. They're going to be talking about drug and alcohol abuse. They're going to talk about the opioid um, epidemic. Um, it's true in communities across the United States. And so since the Lord had already allowed us to be involved in biblical counseling, um, we had some persons that we were working with or others that wanted help, but they needed more than just one hour a week counseling. They needed residential programs. And the Lord, by His grace, allowed us to receive a grant that um, allowed us to build um, a program for young ladies um, ages 14 to 28 struggling with unplanned pregnancies, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, eating disorders, and self-harm. It's called Vision of Hope. It's right on our Faith East campus. And so young ladies come, and they're generally going to be with us for a couple of years. They receive um, intensive biblical counseling. They receive jobs training. And most importantly, they receive the love of the body of Christ. So they become part of our church family. People get to know them, get to know their stories, get to share their struggles, and help them change through the power of the gospel. And a church has to decide, do we really want, shall we say, those kind of people in our church family? So do I want to be going to church every Sunday, every Wednesday night with with um, recovering drug addicts, with women with unplanned pregnancies, et cetera, et cetera? And my answer is absolutely. We think that's what a church ought to be like. We think that a church ought to be welcoming to people who are struggling. And then God allowed us, um, subsequent to that, to receive another piece of property separate from what we had, where we did the same thing for men. And so that's called Men's Restoration Ministry, and um, that's a place where guys, especially struggling with drug and alcohol abuse, um, are able to come, they receive intensive counseling, they receive jobs training, and they get their life back on track to the glory of God. It's done through the power of Christ. But you better believe our community leaders are very, very thankful that churches are willing to get their hands dirty in some of the most challenging social problems that we have in our town. Steve, I want you to explain part three to us, the challenges of community-based ministry, answering common objections, and getting started. Uh, Fill us in. Well, there's a lot of reasons uh, that some churches would say, well, we can't love our community in the way that you're describing, and and one of them is liability, and um, there are answers to that, and um, it's good to get lawyers involved if you're going to be involved in a a community-based counseling center or if you're going to do some of this addictions training, but there are ways to organize yourselves to separate your assets from your risks. There are appropriate insurance policies that can be taken out in order um, just to protect yourself Um, So those kind of common objections that I typically hear about risk and liability, they can be addressed. But ultimately, Pat, I honestly believe that if, if Christians and churches honestly have the compassion of Christ in their hearts for those who live around them who don't yet know the Lord, they're going to get past some of those liability risk questions, and they're just going to get busy loving their neighbors. Steve, give us 30 seconds, a challenge... Uh, to people who've been listening to us? 
Well, you know, it's very easy to become inbred. It's very easy to become insular. It's very easy to become focused on, well, how can we just use our resources to make our life better? And I think God has called us to something higher than that. I think God has called us to look out beyond the walls of our church, to see those in need, um, to see a field that is white with harvest, and to creatively find ways to meet those needs. And I believe that honors the Lord. I believe that helps build His church. And I believe that fulfills what Jesus said in the Great Commission or in the Sermon on the Mount, let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Steve Byers has been our guest, Loving Your Community, the name of the book. Uh, We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Welcome again, folks. Steve Byers, our guest in that first segment. Uh, Doug Reed is with us. He's in Kansas City, Missouri. His book is called Divine Intentions, President of Partnership International. Uh, Welcome, Doug. How you doing? Hey, doing well. It's my honor to be with you guys. Doug, before diving into the book, uh, what is Partnership International? Yeah, well, I'm I'm a speaker, traveler, teacher. I, I speak at conferences and churches around the country. I'm also a teaching pastor at four large churches that I'm with about four to five Sundays a year. And I take all that influence, and I use it for uh, missions. Uh, Proverbs 31.8 says that we should speak for those that can't speak for themselves and ensure justice for those that are being crushed. And what God spoke to me was to take the influence He gives me and use it for those that don't have any influence. And so we created a nonprofit, a missions organization, about 15 years ago. And since then, we've taken around 7,000 people on missions trips and have seen, uh, well, well over a million dollars worth of work and labor and finances go to needy projects in some of the world's poorest places. Divine Intentions, the name of your book, The Life You're Supposed to Live, The Person God Meant You to Be. Uh, how did this book come about? Uh, well, uh, it, God started dealing with me about five years ago about the process that he took me through, uh, starting at about the age of 20. Around 20 years old, I found myself as a Christian, uh, knowing Christ, knew that I was saved, but I was still tied up in knots. The, the uh, issues, uh, the deep soul wounds that I had from my past did not magically disappear uh, just with praying a salvation prayer. And so God took me through Uh, a four-step process uh, that I really probably wouldn't even have recognized if it wasn't for hindsight, having gone gone through it. And so I I really wrote the book to like a 20-year-old version of me, uh, somebody that knows Christ but has no idea how to be the person that they've been called to be or live the life God's called them to live. And and so I take them on the same journey that I I went on. Doug, part one is called Rescued. And under that, you write about the rescue and faith to see and discovering home. Uh, I'd like to hear all about this. Uh, fill us in. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's where the gospel begins, isn't it? It's, uh, the Bible says that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And uh, why would we uh, need to be saved if we're not even willing to admit that we need to be rescued? So it's it's not in strength that we find the power of God. It's It's in vulnerability. And so I start right there uh, with admitting your need to be rescued and ultimately uh, letting God be the hero of your story. Uh, I think in our culture today, uh, we all want to be some type of fantastic hero. But at the end of the day, uh, I'm not the hero of my story. Christ is the hero of my story. And and so we, we begin there with that place of vulnerability and weakness. Uh, the Bible says that God's power is made perfect in weakness. And so I take uh, the readers through really three chapters, uh, both admitting your weakness and being able to somehow envision the life that God would give you, uh, taking off your lenses and putting on His and seeing your life through faith, and then uh, ultimately letting God be the author of your story. I thank God so much that He... Uh, wrote a new story for me, and I believe that he wants to do that for everybody. Now, uh, we move to part two. It's called Restored Soul Level Healing, and back to Eden, the forgiveness factor. Uh, Tell us about that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, this is really where the crux of the book is at, the, uh, the middle six chapters, and it begins with restoration. And 
The idea of soul-level healing, I, I talk about uh, something I call the fullness of our redemption. Uh, I do believe there's some false teaching out there that almost like adds something to our salvation, but I'm not talking about adding something to salvation. What I'm talking about there is actually receiving all that Christ did for us. Uh, Bible scholars believe that the cross was not uh, was not really an, uh, just a moment; it was an event. Uh, the actual events of the cross, including the betrayal and the beating of Christ, it was probably about an eight-hour event. And we know that Christ died for our sins, but uh, we also uh, know that the Bible says that He was beaten for our healing. He took stripes on His back for our physical healing. But even more than that, he experienced abandonment from his family and his friends. He experienced abuse. Um, we know that he was crucified naked, even by our own laws, to expose somebody naked in the public is a form of sexual abuse. Uh, we also know that uh, they hurled insults at Christ. The gospel says that three different times, that the soldiers hurled insults at Christ. So, so here's what I believe. I believe, yes, Jesus died for our sins. But I also believe that he uh, died on the cross for my healing, that he died for my abandonment. Every second of the cross was redemptive by nature. And so my abandonments have been uh, redeemed by the cross. My abuses have been redeemed by the cross. I believe that every negative word that was ever spoken over me, either by others or by myself, that Christ took those things to the cross. So there's fullness in my redemption. There's soul-level healing. And then I go on to write about Back to Eden and the idea of how we self-sabotage our relationships. Uh, the life that God's called us to live is not just about what we're called to do, it's about who we're called to do it with. And so I write a chapter about God healing us in the area of relationships, and then, and then I, I move on to other topics as well. But that middle section of restoration really is uh, uh, the crux of the book. So we've covered, <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> we've covered rescued, and we've covered restored. Now, uh, Doug, talk to us about relabeled. And you write about a sticky business and running your race and God thoughts. I want to hear you uh, expand on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, when we are saved and we are restored, uh, that isn't just so that we can sit around and talk about how healthy we are. God redeems us for a purpose, and and that purpose begins with understanding our identity in Christ. And so the chapter relabeled, it might be my favorite chapter in the book. And I, I write about actually the first time I ever remember having somebody say something negative to me. It was when I walked into grade school and somebody called me four eyes because I had glasses on. And I was surprised at how that label stuck to me, how strong it was, and how even when I ripped it off, there was a wound uh, there. And of course, as I went on with my life, like all of us, I received many more and worse labels. And I write about how that even my own voice became a labeling voice. Uh, we all eventually become, uh, we join the choir of our self-demise, if you will. We become a part of our own defeat. And so I, I had to discover in my early 20s, uh, who has the right to label me? Uh, I've become stingy, if you will, with my labeling rights. Not everybody has the right to label you. Uh, really, it's the owner or it is the manufacturer, the creator, that has the right to label something. If you create something or if you own something, you can label it. And we know that God is our creator, and the Bible also says that he purchased us with a price. And so I prioritize the voice of my father, and I let him speak to my identity, and then I invited in other voices that care about me and and uh, allowed those to speak to me as well. I, I go on to expand on that in the other chapters in different ways, but that middle section is all about receiving our identity in Christ. Now, <clears throat> now uh, Doug, we move to part four. It's called Redirected. Fearless navigation, godly goals, pure potential. Uh, mm -hmm. Explain that to us. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, all of this healing uh, that we've been through, being rescued, being restored, being relabeled, it's all for a purpose. And so God begins to redirect us. And in this chapter, I talk about arriving at a place of neutrality, uh, spiritual neutrality, taking my hands off the wheel and saying, God, I, I really want my life to be directed into my calling, into what you would have for me. 
And of course, that's going to look different depending on what stage of life you are in. Uh, but thank God that we have an author that never stops writing. Uh, for a young person, which I, I believe many, many young people are reading my book, and, and uh, for a young person, that story can begin at the beginning. For others, uh, God may have to write some addendment chapters, but thank God by His grace, he, he will do that. And I talk about godly goals there because God has stuff for us to do. I, I actually write about a man who tried to buy a ticket to nowhere. He went to all of the plane counters and bus counters and uh, even shipped ports and Nobody would sell him a ticket to nowhere because all forms of transportation, they're designed to take you somewhere, which is, which is good news because God has places for us to go and things for us to do. But what holds us back often are, is fear. That's why I write about fearless navigation and, and allowing the love of Christ to take away our fears. And, and then I end with a chapter called Pure Potential and how that the life that we're called to live, it can be sabotaged. Uh, by sin itself. When we allow uh, sinful habits to remain in our lives, that lack of purity really steals our potential. But as we see in the story of David and other characters in the Bible, God isn't searching throughout the whole earth looking for somebody of talent or great courage, but he's searching for somebody of a pure heart. And that purity really is what sets your potential. I, I actually had the vision to write this book about three years before I could start writing it, because uh, God kept asking me why I wanted to write the book, and I kept giving the wrong answer. Uh, I wanted to be an author, I wanted to sell books, I wanted my ministry to be bigger, all these different things. And finally one day, uh, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I told God I wanted to write a book to broken people because I was a broken person. And the first time I could give this book to somebody that is in a similar place that I was, I will have fulfilled my mission. And then the book uh, really poured out of me. Uh, the life God's called us to live, the person God's called us to be, it's all about getting the motive right, and we can only do that with the help of the Holy Spirit. Doug, <clears throat> Doug Reed is with us. Doug, you write these words. Your story began before you were even born. Your parents were chosen without your consent. Your family history was established before you took your first breath. Your personality, body type, and unique gifts were embedded in your DNA without any prior authorization True. from you. None of it was haphazard. Uh, can you expand on that statement, that whole story there? Yeah, what, what, I'm, what I'm writing about is how our lives uh, look like they're chaos. Uh, we, we don't get to choose so many things about ourselves, from our family history to our body limitations to even our DNA. We don't even get to choose our own names. And so often we can look back, uh, especially those of us that uh, grow up in broken environments and before we're even really of the age of consent, we are uh, hurt in so many different ways. And we look back and we can actually begin to um, be bitter and even resentful of the history that we have. But thank God that we have a divine author uh, who isn't haphazard, who can take all those details of our story and who is not surprised by the family we were uh, uh, born in or the, the home we grew up in or the town we grew up in or our family history. Uh, the Bible says that, uh, that iniquity, the pattern of sin in a family, can, can go for three, four generations, but righteousness can extend to a thousand. Uh, in my own life, I've seen that story. I'm the first Christian in my family. Uh, nobody in my family had ever uh, graduated from college. Uh, certainly nobody grew up in church. And yet now my, almost my entire family have come to Christ. I've traveled the entire world. I've graduated from college. I, my whole family's shy, yet I speak publicly for a living. Uh, God knew who I was even when I didn't know who I was. And my broken past has actually become a strength because it is by the power of my testimony uh, that I'm seeing other people set free. So uh, our stories are not random when we give our lives over to our Creator. I love this statement you wrote, Doug. I used to think I was an accident, an experiment gone wrong, but then I met the author of my story and learned his plans for me. The chaos that I had made of my life had not nullified his creative work and he didn't mind doing some rewriting. Mm, what, do yes. you, what do you think? Yeah, well, that, that's the God we serve, isn't it? It's, it's uh, a God who knows how to take our broken stories and turn them into something beautiful. The Bible says that he can, he can, we can trade our, our ashes for his beauty. And that's really what divine intention is, intentions is. 
I, I uh, of course, there's only one section entitled restoration, but but the book is really my manifesto on restoration. It's uh, it's that restorative part of God, and again, uh, that begins at salvation, and 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 Christ's death for the on the cross is what paid for our entire restoration. But I think so many of us, we only scratch the surface of it. You know, we we want the forgiveness of God, and but then we stop right there. When simple restorative prayers uh, pressing into our relationship with God can change absolutely everything about our future and about who we are. Doug Reed is here with us. We've got another segment with Doug. His book is called Divine Intentions. Uh, Doug is uh, speaking with us from Kansas City, Missouri. And you're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Just just keep that dial set all day long and you'll be blessed. We'll be right back. My guest from Kansas City is Doug Reed, his book, Divine Intentions. Doug, there are a couple of key words in your book. Uh, one is intentions, and the other is wounded. Um, can you expand on those two terms? Yeah, well, the idea of divine intentions uh, really is, uh, it's the, the title is designed to make you curious. Uh, what has God divinely intended for me? Uh, one of the illustrations I use uh, early in the book is, uh, taking a person through an imaginary exercise. Uh, you know, imagine you grew up in a perfect home. Imagine you grew up without sin. In fact, your parents never sinned. In fact, generationally, there were never any sins in your family. Everybody obeyed God. Everybody always spoke life to you. Imagine the person you would be. Imagine the insecurities you would have never developed because you never would have wandered into the places where insecurities breed. Uh, imagine the aspects of your personality and your gifting, your calling. Of course, you would be in the perfect will of God because you will always obey God. Now, that's the ultimate in pure fantasy because all of us have broken pasts and all of us come from families that have sinned. But the reason why I take a reader through that exercise is to help them get just a little glimpse of faith, a little glimpse of seeing through God's eyes as to the person we are supposed to be the person that God intended for us to be in the life that he intended for us to have. And so really, if you think about it, salvation is the beginning of that journey. It's the beginning of walking a journey, a restorative journey with our Creator into the person that he's always intended for us to be. But what stole that past from us, what stole that beautiful history that doesn't even exist because, well, it didn't happen because of sin, is our woundedness. Um, it's tough to be the person that you're meant to be when you're just treading water, when you're just hoping to survive because you're so wounded. And so that's that's the journey of my book, is helping somebody to walk through uh, not only uh, restorative acts, but healing acts with our Creator, knowing that uh, He wants us to be the person that He envisions us to be. Doug Reed is our guest. Doug, what are the main obstacles to stepping into the life God has intended for us? Mm. Well, I I think the main one, it might be a little surprising, and that is that it's, a, it's usually an inside job. Um, mm. The person looking back at you in the mirror is typically the biggest problem. In, in fact, even if uh, we could just magically erase our broken past and replace it with something better, it wouldn't be long until we were wounded again. And the reason why is because, well, it's inside of our nature. Um, I, I write a lot in my book about the fall of man, and theologians call this uh, the, uh, the the doctrine of original sin. And if you don't believe in that, well, then you probably never hung out with a toddler. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you don't you don't you don't have to teach a little kid how to lie, cheat, steal, be mean. Uh, it's already inside of them because they are born with a nature that is broken, that's twisted and bent in the direction of sin. And they also are born with a nature that's bent in the direction of insecurity. It's interesting that after Adam and Eve sinned, that immediately they tried to cover themselves. Uh, the Bible says that they realized that they were naked. Uh, this wasn't about them being ignorant or dumb. This was about a perfect purity uh, they were running around naked, and yet there was no insecurity. I don't care how beautiful you think your body is. If you're naked in public, you'll have a form of insecurity because it's with you. 
uh, all the way back from the fall. When sin happened, insecurity rushed in. And so we're all born with this sinful nature, with this nature that's bent in the direction of insecurity. So our failure is ultimately an inside job. And then uh, we're surrounded with people that are broken in the same way that we are. Uh, We grow up in families where uh, the same hurt that was given to my mom and dad, they gave it back to me. Uh, They didn't want to, but it was inside of them. So it goes back generationally uh, where your grandparents didn't speak life to your mom and dad and the great-grandparents didn't speak life to them and goes on and on, three, four, five, six, sometimes a hundred generations back. And then ultimately it's passed down to you. This is the big biblical word uh, uh, called iniquity. And so uh, we're surrounded by uh, enemies of our souls that are unwilling participants in our demise and and so we have we have a lot to overcome, but thank God that he overcame it by the cross. And I, I go back to what I said earlier, the idea of the fullness of our redemption. We have to go beyond just the forgiveness of our sins and receive all that Christ did for us on the cross. Doug, do you think there are any cautions that you can come up with for anyone wanting to sift through their current or past wounds? Yeah. I've actually been asked this, uh, Pat, in several interviews already since my book came out, and uh, because I do believe there's a lot of bad teaching out there uh, when it comes to this, and and there could be uh, people that don't have your best interests at heart that are just wanting you to dig up old wounds. And again, uh, in my book is not even in the slightest trying to add something to our salvation, uh, rather the opposite is trying to get us to experience the fullness of what Christ did. I think the only caution I would I would give is any journey to the past, whether mentally, emotionally, spiritually, or even in counseling, if it doesn't have a forward-leaning look to it, if it doesn't have a forward purpose, well, then it's a meaningless journey. I don't want to just dig up something for the sake of digging up something. But when you have a wound that is festering, that, that you know is there, and you've never really dealt with it, and it's become a part of your identity— uh, sometimes you have to go backward a little bit to go forward. Uh, but thank God that he is the author of our story, and he never takes us backward without telling us the reason why and helping us to become the person we're meant to be. Certainly, you should not go backward just to go backward. But if you're going back and allowing God to heal you so that you can be the person you're meant to be, it's like trying to launch a rocket on a platform that has cracks in it and it's not really level. Well, you can launch that rocket over and over again, but it's not going to go where it is meaning to go. You have to have this foundational restoration before you can really launch your life in the right direction. Doug, I'd like you to offer uh, some closing words of encouragement uh, to our listeners. Yeah, I I believe there's a lot of people out there that they're just like I was. Uh, You long ago uh, joined the choir of your own self-demise and and, and in your own mind, you actually started agreeing with what the people around you were saying about you. After all, when somebody labels you or lies about you, uh, the reason why it sticks is because it probably has a hint of truth to it. None of us uh, are more familiar with our failures than ourselves. Uh, you know uh, how bad your past is. And so when somebody highlights that, uh, that hint of truth, if you will, that twisted truth, it causes it to stick. Uh, my encouragement would be to really prioritize the voice of your Heavenly Father. Uh, What healed me was the book of Ephesians. Uh, The book of Ephesians Mm. is primarily about our identity in Christ, and in in my early 20s, I dove into the book of Ephesians and just really poured over it. And in other parts of the Bible, uh, I wrote the book around Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared for us long ago. Uh, I would encourage you when you read a verse like that to read it in the first person. For for Doug is God's masterpiece, and he was created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared for him long ago. Put your name right in it. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29, that says that God chose the weak things instead of the strong. God chose the things that the world despised and looked down upon, uh, to nullify those that think that they're righteous before God. And you can look that up in various versions and put your name right in the middle of that. Uh, I believe that God wants to heal our self-worth. 
And ultimately, he wants us to be the person that he's created us to be. And if he did this for me, well, then he'll do it for you. Uh, There's not one listener out there that has a past that is so broken that Christ cannot restore it. And in fact, I would take it a step further and say that God loves to choose broken people who know they're not worthy of calling, and yet he loves to call them to great things. Part of why God chose me is because he knew that he would get the glory out of my life because I was such an unlikely choice. Sometimes we think that uh, the way God's going to glorify himself is to save somebody rich or famous or whatever, and we love it when that happens. But the truth is God gets the greatest glory when he chooses nobodies like you and me, and he restores them, and he does something great through them, and he wants to do that through each one of you. Doug Reed has been our guest author of Divine Intentions. Doug, a million thanks. That was a marvelous half hour. I'm so glad we could catch up here. Man, it's just my great honor and love to do it again sometime. We will have a wrap-up right after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Thanks so much for joining us, folks. Steve Viers was our guest in that first segment. Loving Your Community, the name of his book. And then Doug Reed came along from Kansas City, and we talked about divine intentions. Uh, Let me just chat for a minute with you about baseball in Orlando. We're trying to bring Major League Baseball here, folks, and become a big league city. Uh, We're working on it, and we uh, remain very optimistic. But we need your help. need to express interest in doing this. So go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com. OrlandoDreamers.com, and just follow the uh, the prompts there, and just let people know uh, that you're interested. We've got over eleven thousand six hundred people have gone up already, but we need a lot more uh, to show Major League Baseball uh, that this can be a great baseball city. Uh, I'm Pat Williams. This is the Saturday Power Hour. We're back next week for more. On the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.